They were saying Mike, Mike, and I wasn't responding because I'm Sean. But they meant this. All right. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 8 and part 4, and then we're going to get into Revelation chapter 9, which is going to launch us into some amazing stuff. I have to do some housekeeping with Revelation 8. A little bit of it's redundant. We're going to get into and cover it on the board or references for those of you who would want those references. But let's do what we always do. Pray, sing the word of God, sit in silence, reflect upon our faith. You know, Revelation is meaningless if it doesn't have application to us somehow. Teach us something about being better Christians. And so that's why we are going through it one time only in my life. And then we'll uh, go on. So that will take us to... Uh, verse 12 of chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, and then we'll get into chapter 9. So let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, for the many souls who sacrificed their time, their lives uh, to bring it forth. We look to it and know that you speak to us through it. We are grateful for your spirit, which you send, calling all people to look to you and live. And of course, we are grateful, uh, Lord God, for your son. You loved us so much, you sent him and we look to him in faith. We don't look to him in works, and we don't look to him in our own efforts, and we don't look to him in our righteousness, because those things are but filthy rags. We look to him uh, and the works he did, and the life he lived, and the message he brought, and then we say we trust that, and then we try to follow in after him by your spirit, and we just pray that you'll help us be better Christians in this way. And... Um, just honestly, Lord, as we talk, I, I look around and, and this, the, the suffering in the world is so brutal and I know it's always been there and it gives us uh, this idea that it's the end, but it has always been here and uh, it's bad. And so we just pray you'll strengthen those who care about you, who care about the truth, who care about sharing you with others. And that's gonna be uh, those who are definitely in the sound of my voice and those who are at other churches who are seeking you and seeking to know you. So we pray that you'll just help your body uh, be strong in this age of self. And just pray that the Spirit will move us as we reflect upon you now. In Jesus' name, amen. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he guilty of all for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all for whoever shall keep stumble in one point he is guilty of all for whoever shall keep the whole on yet stumble in one point he is guilty for whoever shall keep the whole on yet stumble 
Oh, love
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Okay, bear with me for a few first few minutes because I'm going to cover some passages that we haven't covered, but it's going to reiterate a few common things that we have to realize when we study the book of Revelation. So our text for today, we've covered the first three trumpets. And in fact, I'm going to be, do you have, are you prepared for me to go to the board? Yeah. All right, I'm going to go to the board really quickly, just automatically, because I just want to reiterate this. And that is, um, we have, uh, just imagine that this is a chessboard, and we have, these are the seals that are being played out on the chessboard, and then we have another level, and they are the trumpets, and they are being played out simultaneously but from a trumpet perspective this is the seals perspective same moves but from the trumpets perspective and then we have the uh, vials which is coming up in chapter 16 and these all again covering the same content the same moves but um, through of the vial description so there is that recapitulation, but not only that, we also can add, and this is gonna blow your mind, when it comes to these seals, trumpets, and vials, we also can add uh, Exodus and the plagues that hit Egypt, same pieces in the same place, 
but echoed through the exodus and the plagues. So again, so you have a game going on like this, and then you have descriptions coming out like that. And then when it comes to elements of the game, we are going to add next week, I just want to give you a foreshadowing so you don't think I'm nuts. We actually have um, astronomy and astrology that is going to play into uh, some of the elements of this. So that has got to be taken into that what the Babylonians saw and talked about in the sky, astronomy, and it's also uh, because we get our astrological signs from it, there is a play into that. And, and when I just show it to you, you're gonna say, wow, it does fit, but that is the belief of all the things, these are, you can just say signs in the sky are being revealed too. So hang with me till next week. But I wanted to remind you that we have a whole bunch of levels, not only in the horizontal, but in the vertical, in our trying to understand the book of Revelation and all that it's talking about. All right. So our text for today says, and the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it, so a third part of a day, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of earth by reason of the voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are to yet sound. Woe, 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 because of the, the future angels, what they're gonna bring, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So let me talk about some of this imagery with darkness over a third part in the sky, and then also eagles. In verse 12, we have that fourth angel saying, a third part of the sun, third part of the moon, third part of the stars smitten, third part of them darkened, and the sun shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So when you just read that, you can take it in a very literal sense and actually believe that one third of the sun was gone, one third of the moon, and a third part of the stars, and a darkness was over a third part, or you can see it in another way, which I'm going to try to convince you of. Then at verse 13, John says, and I beheld, I saw, and heard, I heard, so he sees and hears, an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So now an angel apparently is going to be going through and trumpeting and saying woe, 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 because the next three angels are going to bring in some real catastrophic stuff. Now, in verse 13, in any of your verses here, the people who are here, if you're following along with me, does anybody have anything about an eagle? Ah, very good. Very good. We have two people who are reading a Bible in here, and it, uh, and, uh, it talks about an eagle in their ver versions, and yet we read it, from the King James at least, and maybe some of the others, and it says, Be so, I saw and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. Now, is it an angel or is it an eagle? That means, a, that means something important when it comes to reading the Bible I mean, because they're very different things. Well, in the translation 
of that passage, most translations do not say in their, in their manuscript evidence, Angelos Petamenos. Most translations say Atos Petamenos. And that means that most translations read an eagle, not an angel. And so if you're reading the King James and you read angel and you make a big deal of, whoa, there's an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying, whoa, 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 and you build a whole teaching off that, it's incorrect in all probability because most translators agree it's an eagle that's being talked about. So to bring it all back to earth and remove it from the imaginations of men, and, and this is talking, this is imagery and language, and I know we've covered this, that is talking about the destruction of a kingdom. When you read in scripture in the Old Testament about darkness in the heavens, it's typically talking about kingdoms and kings falling. All right, so I gave you some passages over there, and there's, I don't know, about eight, starting with Isaiah 13, 9, 11. Let me read these to you, and just listen to the way the Hebrews talked about things and kingdoms that were falling in their day in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, 9. He wrote, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, the day of the Lord, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. This was a Hebraic way of saying this, this stuff is coming from God and these are signs of what it's going to look like. Isaiah was not talking about the end of the world here. He wasn't talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He was talking about an event that was going down in his day. The stars, they shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth. The moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So we read there, there's an example. Here's another one from Isaiah, where again, the, he is warning the Israelites of something that was coming to wake them of their spiritual stupor in that day. This has nothing to do, we can read and say he's talking about the end of the time or end of the world, he's not. He says the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day, the Lord shall punish the hosts of the high ones that are high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth, and they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in a pit, and shall be shut up into the prison, and after many days they shall be visited. And the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign from Mount Zion in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Now, uh, futurists could say this is describing the end of the world, and that may, uh, or the end of the time, whatever you want, but that may be true. We don't have anything telling us that, but it certainly was describing something that was happening in Isaiah's day, and he was telling them that this is what's going to happen to us. Oh, whoa, Jerusalem, for your, uh, for your uh, wickedness. Now, to the Assyrians, this is a direct speech to the Assyrians Isaiah gives in Isaiah 34, 3 through 5. He says, Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stinks shall come out from their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Hebraic language to describe just carnage. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. 
Did you hear that? That's what he said about the Assyrians in the Old Testament. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Does this sound familiar to you? Someone else uses the same language. Peter, we're going to read from him. Same language. Futurists say it's describing the end. I've heard on the radio not longer than a couple months ago, a pastor say uh, to a caller who called in, don't worry about it. Everything is going to be melted and rolled together as a scroll, and nothing is going to exist that has existed. It's all coming to an end, and it seems like it's going to be sooner than later. He uses the words of Peter, who's quoting the words here of Isaiah, who's speaking directly to what will happen to the Assyrians. And we know that the heavens weren't rolled up like a scroll and all the elements were melted. We know that. So we have to say this is Hebraic language that it, God and the people used to describe. So all the hosts of heaven should be dissol uh, dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from off the vine as a falling fig from the fig tree. And my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. It's a straight up, Isaiah saying this is what's coming, and it did come. So most reliable biblical scholars admit that when the Bible in the Old Testament talks about the stars and the sun and things falling and dimming, that it's the falling of earthly kings, earthly kingdoms. Uh, in Ezekiel 32, 7, it says, And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars, there, stars thereof dark, I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee, and set darkness upon the land, saith the Lord God. Uh, so there's another example. And Ezekiel chapters 11 and 12, I don't have it up on the board. If you read those, it's all in this language. And Joel uh, uh, uses the same language. He says, the earth, this is Joel 2.10, shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. This was not Joel speaking. Now, people will say he was talking, and they can say he was talking about a future time of the end of the world, but he was certainly talking about a time there when God was acting. So in other words, all of these Old Testament passages are and were descriptions for them in that day of what was going to or had happened to them. Same in Revelation, a description of earthly kings and kingdoms falling. And so the language that is used here is equal to the language that is used in the Old Testament. Now, getting to Peter, what did he say? Because it's in the New Testament, and Peter is looking for the end of the age, the second coming of Christ. He is saying the end is at hand, it's near, it's with us. Peter uses similar language, and he says in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, but the day of the Lord, so you know he's talking to believers. When he says the day of the Lord, he means the Lord coming back will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that therein shall be burned up, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Same language, he's just describing what it symbolically would mean when Christ comes. All the heavens would be shaken once more, all the earth shaken once more, so the only thing that remains is that which is unshakable, and he describes it with the same verbiage that the Old Testament prophets used to describe the 
end of the time or the coming of the Lord in their day. So we could go on and show from the Old Testament more of these things, but this is what I'm trying to kind of capture for you. Now, I mentioned eagles, uh, and Elaine and Stan, they have a Bible where eagles, that they have the proper translation in my estimation, not angels, but an eagle. If you go to Deuteronomy 28:49, these are on the board, Jeremiah 4:13, Lamentations 4:19, Hosea 8:1, Habakkuk 1:8 or Habakkuk. The the same principle is true. Eagles represent a bird of prey, an animal that is coming in to overwhelm the nation. Birds have the same covenantal curse in the Old Testament. And it means kingdoms that are being devoured by other kingdoms coming in upon them. So Genesis 15, 9 through 12 talks about birds. Proverbs 30, 17. All the Jeremiah references, Jeremiah 7, uh, 33, Jeremiah 16, 3, 19, 7, 34, 18, and Ezekiel 39, 17. All use that imagery. I could read them for you, but lack of time. All use the imagery of birds Eagles, too, coming in upon a people, a kingdom, and that is, they're coming in when the kingdom is dying or dead, all right, barely alive. So remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, for wheresoever the carcass is, this is in the uh, chapter where he's talking, where his apostles say, what does the end look like? When will be the sign of your coming? He says, wherever a carcass is, there will be eagles gathered together. So this is what Revelation is talking about when it says etos uh, petmenos, that it's talking about the eagles are coming in. The carcass is there. Who's the carcass? What's the carcass? Jerusalem's the carcass. Judea is the carcass. And spiritually dead, the eagles are coming in there. When Jesus said that line, for wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together, the next thing he says in Matthew 24 is immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven the powers of the heavens shall be shaken that's hebraic language right after talking about the eagles so we have a parallel here in the last two verses of chapter eight where where he's talking about the eagles coming in the darkening skies it's a parallel to those two passages there in matthew 24. so uh Additionally, one of the faces of the beast that lives under the throne of God has a face of an eagle. And so that's representing the kingdoms of the earth. But the biggest reason I'm talking about uh, eagles here is because of that translational difference. And if you can get that translational difference correct, then your eyes open as to what the Old Testament would say about eagles and what they're actually doing here uh, in uh, the book of Revelation. The original plagues in Egypt, the curf- curses that accompany the seven trumpets are now being intensified. When we get to this next trumpet, it gets heavy. And that's what happens with the curses in uh, Exodus 2. Heavier and heavier come the, the, the uh, curses upon um, Egypt, and heavier and heavier are coming the curses upon Jerusalem. John, he's building up a crescendo, and the three woes of the eagle corresponding to the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets. That's why the eagle is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why? Because there's three trumpets left. 
and it's coming heavier and heavier and heavier. So that's why there's the three, and to dramatize the, the disasters that are being visited upon the land of Israel and the Jews. So after many delays and much long suffering and the, the jealous Lord of hosts has now revealed what he's bringing upon their awful sanctions upon those who, of the law and the covenant breakers. And he's doing this to bring about the full shaked out kingdom uh, for his son, Christ Jesus. Now, four years before the Jewish war began, there, it is written that someone named Yeshua, the son of Ananus, was heard in Jerusalem saying, whoa, whoa, uh, there. Uh, and, and perhaps this is another example of revelation being fulfilled. I don't know, but I just wanted to bring that out. Also, and we've talked about this, if eagle is the proper translation, which I think it is, the aquila was the symbol of Roman power, and the aquila was an eagle on a standard. And so as the nations marched in to take over Jerusalem, that eagle was coming before them, crying, woe, 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 Jerusalem, figuratively. Um, so, <clears throat> let me see if there's more here on the eagle. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Rome had the eagle as the symbol for its power and might. No, it's like America has the, the uh, symbol of an eagle for our power and might. And uh, as we said, whenever Rome went to war with, against another nation, it carried that metal pole with an eagle or aquila at the top of it. So it symbolized its power. According to Josephus' account of the Jewish war, uh, Rome issued repeated warnings, as we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, to Jerusalem, surrender, 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 whoa, 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 we're marching in upon you, and they didn't. Uh, in fact, Josephus himself issued warnings, and they, they, they didn't listen to him either. And so that brings us to Revelation chapter 9. All right. The outcome of all these foreboding omens are going to now start to roll forth. And let's read through the first 21 verses of Revelation chapter 9. And it's going to launch us out into several short studies of things that we're going to incorporate into our thinking to help understand what's going on. All I can say is look the heck out. Nine is wild. It brings a whole bunch to the scene. I mean, even in our own culture, remember Revelation number nine, if you're a rock fan, the Beatles uh, album, uh, the White Album, I think it was, and Revelation, Revolution number nine. Uh, it was an amalgam, the intro of it was an amalgamation of voices and sounds and, and words and Revelation number nine, number nine, number nine. They did that, according to Lennon, because he wanted to bring an audio representation of what the apocalyptic end of something or revelation would sound like. Well, Charles Manson, you know, took that music and he applied his interpretation of it. And we're going to even touch on what Manson said about Revelation number nine as we read through it really quickly. So let's go. Verse one, Revelation number nine. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him, so we have a star, to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. This is the chapter that really starts frightening people. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose smoke out of the pit, 
as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts. Just as a side note, and I won't go back to it again, this is where Manson said, the locusts, little locust creatures, insects, are the beetles. Locust beetles. And they are coming forth out. And that's how, I mean, so, and I bring that to your attention because if you have an imagination or enough drugs, you can come up with anything. And he literally interpreted the locusts of Revelation 9 to be the beetles saying, we have come out at, uh, of the bottomless pit. And so, and there came out smoke of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing nor any tree, but only the men who have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days men shall seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shape of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were it were as crowns like unto gold. And their faces were the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions. And their stings were in their tails. And the power was to hurt men men five months and they had a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon but in the Greek tongue his name is Apollyon one woe is past and behold there are two woes more hereafter the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel that had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates, and the four angels are loosed, were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay a third part of men. And the number of the army of horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of hyacinth and brimstone and the heads of the horses were the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone by these three was the third part of men killed by the fire by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths for their power is in their mouth and in their tails for their tails were likened to serpents and had heads and them which they do hurt and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of silver and gold and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornications nor of their thefts we're going to hit the first i think i don't know three verses right now before we wrap it up and we're going to get into what all those mean now when you read those i remember seeing cartoons when i was part of calvary chapel where really good artists drew these locusts and you know they took it very literally and and they drew them and this is what's going to come out of the earth and is going to tromp about and is going to sting their tails are going to come up and sting people and for five months they're going to want to die and they can't and this is a very a literal 
futurist perspective. Well, let's start to see now, going through the verses, if there is a reasonable his historic support for what's going on here. Verses 1, 2, and 3, we always repeat. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them were given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. As a scorpion of the earth has power. Okay, we're going to get into this, and hopefully I can make it make sense to you. Uh, I want to teach some things along the way. So let me begin by talking about the books or writings that were either not part or surrounding the Old Testament. And uh, they are not found in most Bibles today. If I asked you to turn to the Apocrypha in your Bibles, most of you would not be looking at one. If you're a Catholic, you would. The Catholics in their Bible have the Apocryphal books. Um, there's also a set of books called pseudopigrapha, which all it means in the Greek, I just, I, I, I thought I could launch that, I can't. I was gonna say a false pig, but uh, a pseudopigrapha is a false writing, it is a writing that claims to be from Isaiah, but is another author. And so we have two different types of books that never make it into the Old Testament, unless you're a Catholic or unless you're Martin Luther. Martin Luther included the apocryphal books in his Bibles, at least for a certain time, and then they were taken out. So the, the pseudopigrapha and the apocrypha are two different things. The contents of the Old Testament apocrypha are pretty much fixed. We have a bunch of books that are considered to be valuable. Some consider them to be inspired, and some consider them to be not of great value. But the 39 books of the New Testament essentially were accepted by all Christians, and they're certainly accepted by all Jews prior to the coming of Christ. Those were established, right? These extra books that have some value, the Apocrypha, include Judith and Tobit, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, a book called The Wisdom, or Book of Wisdom, a book called Ecclesiasticus, don't get it confused with Ecclesiastes, two different books, a book called Baruch, Susanna, and there are additions to the book of Daniel in the Apocrypha, and, and one of them is called Bell and the Dragon. So Bell and the Dragon would be a book that would be added on to the end of Daniel, which is very uh, apocalyptic, the book of Daniel. There's another book that one church on earth includes in, the, in their Bibles that is part of the Apocrypha, and for some it's part of the Pseudopigrapha, and it's called First Enoch, all right? That book is, again, it's part of the Ethiopian church. The Coptics consider First Enoch scripture, but uh, Christians, evangelicals, don't even give it a look, and, and, and the Catholics consider it Pseudopigrapha, and they, and they don't even consider it Apocrypha, but the Coptic church considers it scripture, all right? 
Now, that little caveat I just shared with you about First Enoch's important because what I just read in the first three verses of Revelation 9 are touched upon in the book of First Enoch. So we know that it contains some things that are being mentioned or referred to in some books of the New Testament. Uh, let me go on. The Old Testament pseudopigrapha is loosely defined, and there's a lot of books, and they keep, they pop up and they go away and they show up, and I mean, a pseudopigraphal book could be written today, and someone could claim this came from Isaiah, and it would be a pseudopigraphal book because they, most people would say that didn't come from Isaiah, so it's a pseudopigraphal book. They started popping up around 250 B.C., to about 150 AD. That window of time, the pseudopigraphal books of the Old Testament were showing up. And they are said to have been written again by someone who claims to have been an Old Testament character, but in all probability they were pseudo or false or fraudulent. So with that definition in mind, first Enoch and sometimes Baruch are considered by some to be pseudopigrapha. These two books are kind of links between the Apocrypha and the Pseudopigrapha. Baruch and First Enoch kind of rest in between those two. The numbers uh, or the name of a few of the Pseudopigrapha books that are out there are Odes to Solomon, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Esdras, Revelation of Moses, 2 and 3 Baruch, the Book of Adam, and a whole bunch more. So neither the Old Testament Apocrypha nor the New Testament uh, or the Old Testament Pseudopigrapha is accepted by Christians today for a number of reasons. And let me tell you what they are. The primary reason is that the Jews themselves have never accepted those books into their canon. That's the primary reason. Why the Catholics and, and why Luther... And why the Ethiopian Coptic Church decides to take some uh, either pseudopigraphal works or apocryphal books and add them to theirs, I don't know. They might see something there that's of value, but they're, they're typically not there. God gave, according to the Jews, uh, their scribes, the job of gathering collected writings and determining whether they were inspired or not. We have to sort of assume the Jews knew which books were inspired because we have the Old Testament of pretty much of what they, not pretty much, but it's what they say were inspired works. So there's that. Another reason these books might be viewed with some suspicion is because of the content of the books themselves. Um, just read Bell and the Dragon, and you'll, I mean, those of you who are, are Bible readers, it's like when you pick up any pseudo-scriptural book. It automatically tells you this is not legit. I have to be frank, sometimes there's a couple books in the Bible, when I read them, I say, this doesn't sound like a biblical writer. And I say, this doesn't even sound, I, I, I admit that just in my intellect, which is limited, but I, and, I, and I never say they're not inspired, but sometimes I'm reading through and I'll get to a certain book and it just does not ring true to me. And I think we have that right to say that I just don't respond spiritually. Well, Bell and the Dragon, Third Baruch, even one Enoch are all books, when you open them up, you might say, well, that's good, that's good. And you're going to have some, whoa, yeah, no, 
They say some crazy things. We've heard, I'm not even talking about the apocryphal books of the New Testament yet. We could go forever on that topic. And that's one of the criticisms against the church today is that the New Testament has a whole bunch of really good books that they should be included in our New Testament. But if you read those books that they say are really good and you just give yourself time to, you can get them online and you just start reading, you know, by the Spirit, you're going to be, oh, that's good, that's good. What? You know? Jesus said, rideth on a, on a fox and you will turn into a hare. I mean, it just says these and then you just say, okay. Now I see why it wasn't included. Uh, probably uh, a good tenth of the emails we've received over the years have been people saying, what do you think about? No, I mean, the books we have aren't enough for people. They want to, to go out and find the other ones and bring them in. And I think that, you know, history has shown the men and women who've come before us have said, believe us, these things don't fit. So just read the content. Uh, Book of Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, contain sayings that are just blatantly false, all right? A third reason these books are questioned is that without exception, they were written hundreds of years after the Old Testament was complete. Now, some people will use that as a criticism against the New Testament. In fact, we heard that on our show on Wednesday night, a Tuesday night of last week. We had someone who was a guest say, you know, they weren't even written at that time. And they used that as a justification to uh, malign the New Testament. But it's not the same thing. We're talking hundreds of years later. And the fourth point is they weren't written in Hebrew, which is really important. The Old Testament books were written in Hebrew. These pseudepigraphal books and these uh, apocryphal books were either written in Greek or they were written in, um, uh, what's the A one? Uh, Aramaic. They were written in, in those. And so that says, well, you know, come on, there's another reason. So not as good of a reason or as strong as a reason, but at least they were uh, probably products of like the third, fourth century. Got all that? Okay. So in our text of the first three verses, verse two, and he opened the bottomless pit and there arose smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. That is a great uh, borrowing, we could say, from first uh, Enoch. We find it in the Revelation. And so that causes people like the Coptics to say, hmm, we think that this should be in our Bible, right? And so let me just quickly, I know there's a little tangential today, but the book of Enoch attributes its authorship. Remember, is it pseudopigraphal or is it apocryphal or is it real scripture? It attributes its author to Enoch, the great grandfather of Noah, and who was the son of uh, Jared, dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. So we're talking about this would be a real ancient book. And Enoch is also one of the two people in the Bible that God took up in a whirlwind and like didn't die, twinkle of an eye kind of thing, Elijah being the other one. What's interesting about this book, and if you've been with us studying in Meet, the book of Enoch is quoted from in uh, the book, is it Jude? Um, Jude, it's quoted from. So a New Testament writer has taken what some deem as an apocryphal book, others deem as a actual canon, and others deem as a pseudo-epigraphal book, and the writer of Jude quotes from it. Uh, and, it's, and it's Jude 14, verses 14, 15. Um, 
So I would suggest that you have to make a decision on that one. And the best way to make that decision, because we believe that we are subjectively led by the Spirit and by where God is moving us in our lives, is we have Coptic brothers and sisters, good Christians. Uh, they believe different things, but they have the Book of Enoch. Uh, take it and read it and see, hey, is this bringing something to the table? That's important to me. But we do have Revelation chapter 9, verses 2, smacking of the content in, the, in First Enoch, and we do have Jude quoting verbatim uh, for one Enoch in uh, verses four, 14 and 15 of that book. So did the author of the book actually cite things from Enoch of old? And here's one of the things that many uh, Christian scholars say today, that what the writer of Jude did and what the writer of Revelation did, John, is the Spirit led them to pull from sayings of Enoch that have been passed down along verbally over the years and to incorporate them into the text, but that the book of Enoch itself is not uh, a reliable source. Again, you'll have to decide. So, and, and Jude is not the only book where a non-canonical book is quoted in the New Testament. Uh, there is Titus 1.12, Paul actually cites uh, Epimenides, who is a Greek scholar, Paul quotes Epimenides in Titus 1-2, showing that he was borrowing from secular sources in his composition of uh, the book of Titus. So in the end, it doesn't mean uh, Epimenides' writings should all be included in the Bible, but so to the point, Enoch ten, 1 Enoch 10, 4 through 7 talks about the abyss. So there's the big connection I've just spent this time. Fiery magma at the, earth's, earth's, at the Earth's core that's located underneath the ground. It is one Enoch uh, that brings this forward. And that idea is also confirmed in number 16, Ezekiel 26. And here in Revelation 1-3, the angel opens the abyss and releases smoke and fire. This smoke is so dark that according to verse 2, it darkens the sun and sky. And so there's the connection with all that. Now, what most preterists or preterists believe or fulfillment believers say is this was a volcanic eruption. That literally what John is describing is the earth opening up, the angel coming and opening, and this volcanic ex explosion comes and darkens the sky. It was so thick it can block, blot out the sun. This was the case when we look at the case of uh, uh, Mount Vesuvius blowing up and covering Pompeii. It became dark as night, uh, zero light when that happened. And so there is some evidence of that. But what, that, that Pompeii happened in 79 AD. So we can't use that to justify that that's Pompeii is the result of what Revelation is talking about. So is there a historical account of a um, volcanic eruption that would take out a third of the sky's light, stars, day and night, sun, moon. Is there anything like that? Uh, in the Flavian dynasty, Tacitus, the Roman historian says, quote, 69 AD, whole towns were burned down or buried. Whole towns were burned down or buried throughout the richest part of the coast of Campania or the central coast part of Italy. So if 
Campania, and this was, if this was a volcanic eruption, and most people believe Tacitus was describing a volcano, that Campania would have been covered in complete darkness, but places around there, if it was big enough, would have seen a third or of the sky limited by what happened and would have been affected by it, and that might fulfill uh, this abyss being open and darkening the sky. Even today, if you go to Campania in uh, Italy, you'll discover that there are three active volcanoes going on. They don't, I guess they're not blowing up still, but they move and shake and they're rumbling. And so it is known for its volcanoes. So this idea might hold uh, water. Regardless of whether a volcano erupted in 69 AD, Revelation 1-3 is full of imagery that is describing a beast that is released from the abyss which is the underworld of the dead. Uh, and I know it's heavy. We're getting into some heavy content, but I got to keep going. In Revelation 9, 2, 3, a locust army is released from the abyss. And then in verse 11, the king of this army is identified as the angel of the abyss, whose name is Apollyon. Okay, so we have put this together so far. An angel comes, opens it up, the smoke comes up, a third of the sky is darkened, and out from the abyss come these creatures, these locusts, they're, how they're described, and they have a king whose name is Apollyon in the Greek. In Revelation 17:8, Apollyon is a beast that is described like this, who once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. Now, try to remember that. Apollyon in Revelation 17, 8 is described as the beast that once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss, which is what we're reading about here in uh, Revelation 9. Because the abyss is a spiritual realm of the dead, the expression once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss, I suggest is a cryptic way of saying this beast was once alive, now is dead, and will yet rise from the place of the dead. You can accept that. That's how I would say it is, and I'm not alone. I didn't come up with that. Other people have suggested it. So this is describing a beast that was once living, then dies, then either itself or an image of itself, a replication of itself, rises up out of what is called the abyss, and it is describing Rome, in my estimation. It's describing a period of Rome where Rome what once was, now is not, and will yet rise from the dead. So do we have anything to help us understand that imagery for Rome? How can this view be justified uh, if we're going to assign it to Rome? Here we go. After the death of Nero, Caesar Nero, in June of 68, Nero dies. Rome collapsed because of civil war. And the Roman legions withdrew from Israel. So Israel was left alone here. They were in the midst of war since 64 uh, AD, and here in 68, uh, Nero dies, and there's civil war, and so the pressure is taken off. This period of civil war, 
from the death of Nero started in the summer of 68 and it stayed until the rise of a guy named Vespasian in 70 AD. That part represents he was, he not now is, that's the period, Nero was, he not now is, and yet he will rise again in the form of the next uh, 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 emperor who would be um, Vespasian. So I suggest that this period from 68 to 70 AD is the period of the fifth trumpet of Revelation and the fifth bowl of Revelation 16. The fact that Rome and the beast had been hurled into darkness in Revelation 9-2 and Revelation 16-10 during the fifth trumpet implies that the beast had been cast into the abyss, the dark underworld of the dead as described in Job, and I suggest, as explained in Revelation 13:3, the Flavian dynasty, stay with me, Caesar Vespasian, Caesar Titus, Caesar Domitian, is the beast whose wound has been healed. So we have Nero dying. We have that going into a period of peace because Rome goes into a battle with itself, its own civil war, and, and it pulls away its sources from attacking Jerusalem. So the time now, now is, and, but it's going to rise back up as the beast that was wounded in the persons, the three persons of Caesar Vespasian, Caesar Titus, and Caesar Domitian. So the beast is embodied by those Caesars who shortly after coming back to power brought peace to Rome by destroying Jerusalem. Now, we have today and have had all these ideas of the beast being a man and being wounded and then healed and having one eye and all of that stuff that's a literal concoction from this stuff. But having restored the unity of the empire by putting an end to civil war at the fall of Jerusalem, the Flavian dynasty brought the Roman beast back to life. It came, went from being dead to being raised back to life in the three Flavian uh, emperors. So in other words, the Roman emperor under the trinity of the Flavian Caesars, it's like the unholy trinity, the three Caesars, is the beast who had been healed, wounded, and rises up out of the abyss. I know it's a lot. The Flavians ruled past 70 AD but they were all brought together as Caesars at the same time. You have to understand that. Nero died, civil war, Rome pulls back, there's a period of peace where that beast is not, and then the three, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, are all named Caesars at the same time that Vespasian is ordained the Caesar, or called to be the Caesar. And so that makes them one. So whether they continue to reign past 70 AD to me is irrelevant. We also read in verses one through three that a star is given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Later in that verse, remember I emphasize this, it says, and he. It says a star and he. So who is the star who is allowing the beast to rise back up to power to come in and destroy Jerusalem. Well, if you look throughout scripture and when you let scripture interpret scripture, the star is Christ. Christ is the star. He's the one who said, okay, I'm going to let 
Rome rise back up from the dead, and I'm going to let them come in and overthrow Jerusalem. Uh, remember, Jesus said, I hold the keys of death and Hades. So this imagery of him coming and letting them up out of the abyss, Hades, coming up to life again, he said, I have the keys to it. That's an application of that if you are willing to accept it. He implies that he is the star in verse 1 through 3. He holds the key of David in Revelation 3, 7. So I suggest that Jesus opens this abyss and he allows the locusts who are led by a being called Apollyon to come forward and march upon uh, uh, Jerusalem. The ascent of Apollyon and his army of locusts from the abyss has resurrection imagery because it was dead, now it's being brought back to life. And I think it's probably the best metaphor for what happened to Rome. First, Nero dies, Rome goes into civil war, there is peace with Jerusalem, and then suddenly, Jesus comes down as a star, he opens up the abyss, the volcanoes start hit, uh, hit, hitting and darkening out part of the sky, and up from Rome come these locust soldiers, and they're coming in to uh, bring destruction upon that land. Um, but why is the resurrection of Rome portrayed as an army of locusts rising up out of the abyss, the dark underworld of the dead, because that's the primary meaning of abyss in scripture. In the book of Revelation, the abyss is not just, and this is where it gets dicey because we want things to just mean one thing, but in the book of Revelation, the abyss is not just the place of the dead. It also has symbolic meaning within the Roman Empire and the empire of Gentiles and Jews. The abyss represents, I said this three weeks ago, I, I remember saying it and just mentioning it, and I don't know if it sank into anybody's mind, but the abyss represents foreign nations. In this case, last week or two weeks ago, I said Israel represents the earth and the sea represents foreign nations in Revelation. Well, the sea is also called an abyss in Revelation. So the, the, an abyss can also mean a foreign nation. It can mean a place that is not Jerusalem when you're studying it. And you can, there's passages to support that. So after the death of Caesar Nero, Rome ceased its, its assault on Judea, and Titus and Vespasian left Israel not long thereafter. Around that time of the death of the beast, Nero, and remember, there's a thing called the gematra, and the gematra is the way the Hebrews use their letters to create numbers. And the Jewish gematra names Nero, Caesar Nero, his number from those letters is 666. John says later, if you can, you know what I'm talking about when I say this. I can't write it openly, Caesar Nero will be killed. I can't write the Flavians or the Vespasian, I, we will be killed. So I'm going to give you a number to figure out who this guy is. He's already among us, John said in 1 John. So we have the Gematra applied after the death of Nero, Rome ceased its assault and then, and then Vespasian and Titus left and then, uh, Rome went to Lebanon, and it went to Egypt. That was the Gentile part of Rome, it, the sea. It went into the abyss. 
in order to plot an overthrow of Vitellius, who was a Caesar that was, they were, they were not a Caesar, but they were trying to fight because it was civil war with Rome. So all I'm trying to say is that uh, Rome left Jerusalem and went back to the abyss. It went back to a foreign nation. It went back to a place where the Gentiles were. It went back into the sea. It went back to where the spirit was not at all, the dead places, all right? And that's why thus around the time in which the beast was dead, Vespasian and Titus were in the abyss. They were involved in civil war. Immediately after getting rid of Vitellius and usurping the throne, Vespasian dispatched his son Titus back to Israel and the earth once again was under attack from the Roman military. Therefore, at the coronation of Vespasian, we are presented with the resurrection of the beast. Nero had died, civil war, but Vespasian is coronated as Caesar, and on the same day, so is Titus and Domitian. And so we have the three ordained, and they rise up, those three rise up and come to life again. And where do they go? Back to the earth, which is always represented as Jerusalem. So I know I reiterate, but when the beast Vespasian and our Titus and the Roman army was present on the earth Israel, the beast was alive. When the Roman army was not in Israel, which is called the earth in Revelation, the beast was dead. This is how we have it coming back to life and dying and coming back to life. It's the Roman Empire. Uh, so when the beast rises out of its foreign countries or foreign lands and returns, it comes back to living, and that's the imagery for Revelation. So we now enter into a period when the beast returns from the abyss of the Gentile lands, reanimated perhaps with the spirit of Nero, and is like a locust army. And to reiterate, Revelation 9, 1 through 3 were fulfilled metaphorically from AD 68 to 70 with the death of Nero, the rise of the uh, Vespasians, and the resurrection of the Roman Empire to come back in and finally wipe out Jerusalem. Got all that? We're almost done. As we will see in our study, Nero, Vespasian, and Titus all have the gematra of 666. Let me say that again. Nero, Vespasian, and Titus all share the uh, Jewish gematra, numerical assignment of letters of 666. So when he talks about the beasts, figure the number, go figure the number 666, he's just talking about the Caesars and their reign over Israel through the Roman armies. Uh, and so we're going to see who Apollyon is uh, in verse 11, and we'll address that next week as we continue on with uh, Revelation chapter 9, the locusts, the women's hair, the lion's teeth, and all of that stuff. Questions, comments? Anything? Nope. Oh, over to the side. Oh, it was uh, John. Linda? The, the eagles, yes. Yeah, and, and you're saying they're not the angels? 
I'm saying that the Greek doesn't support angelos. It supports eagles. Um, this Bible I got here, this parallel, it says that this singular angel, Solara, is uh, run, <laughs> running, through the, through, running through the heavens telling everybody, whoa, 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 yeah. that all these things are coming. So it has to be an angel because, in the form of an angel, of a eagle, to me anyway, because an eagle doesn't speak. It has to be in the form of an angel, you're saying? Yeah, it, well, you know, looks like an angel. But when you was reading all this power that comes out of these angels, that comes out of their mouth. Yeah, I know the word thing, John, but listen, when stick on this point, the problem with your summation there is that your version says that the angels are speaking to the other angels in heaven. That's not part of the text. That's someone who's interpreting that. And the other thing is the Greek does not support that. The Greek supports what Stan uh, version says, that it's an eagle, not an angel. It's a different word. Yeah, but Jesus always talked in parables. He never, you know, he never told you. He always talked in stories. And then he'd tell you what these animals meant. And admittedly. And but the stars are the angels, because he holds the seven stars, and he says that they're his angels. Yeah, in that, yeah. But in the book of Revelation, I'm not sure that we can make a direct, uh, I'm not saying it was an actual eagle. I'm saying it was representing, definitely not, it's representing the Roman Empire. That's really what yeah. it is. But John wasn't going to write the Roman so Empire. What do you what do you think the new Roman Empire is today? Oh, no idea. The, it's the Illuminati. They, they control the number 666. They control all the gold and the silver. Well, the number 666. That's how I look at it anyway. Yeah. yeah. Because that number comes from Kings uh, 1014, the love of money. Yeah. All right. Thank you, brother. Let's go to Patrick. This is Patrick. Can you repeat what 666 means? <laughs> And how you if get you would take our alphabet A, B, C, D, and you assign 1 to A, 2 to B, 3 to C, 4 to D, you get it? A numerical value to our letters. Uh -huh. Then if you spelled your name Patrick, the numerical value would, would be some number. When you take Caesar Nero's name and you use it through the Hebrews alphabet assigned with numbers, it comes to 666. Get it? Interesting. And, and John used that as code for people who would know. I, we can, he can't say Caesar's name, so he's going to give us some other way to know who this Antichrist person is. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. And, you know, that really helps us today because there are movies and things with 666 on Damien's head and, you know, Satanists and 666 and... On the back of one of our, our corporate, our ministry credit card, the, the code number is 666. I'm not kidding you. And we had a Christian who's made some new signs that are going for our new set. He, he asked me what it was, and he said to me, I'm not taking that. He said, I'm not taking that. I said, <laughs> I said really? He goes, no, it, it's the mark of the beast. I said, it's our credit card. We had to get a number. This is what it is. And I had to actually convince him to take it. He's a futurist from a certain denomination that's really big on futurism. And he literally started out and said, I'm not taking it. That was three weeks ago. We'll see the signs soon. And Patrick. Oh, I mean, Jonathan. Hi, I'm Jonathan. 
Um, since we're on the subject uh, of 666, it, I think it's probably, in my opinion, the most overrated number in the entire numerical system that we have. Yeah. Uh, we see it on hats nowadays. My yeah. brother has a friend that had it on his hat the other day. Yeah. And uh, I saw a video a couple years ago of a mega church in Florida from a guy, a uh, Cuban guy, named Jesus Miranda. And he claimed that he was Jesus at one point, and now he claims he's Satan. And so his followers of this mega church are getting 666 tattooed all over their bodies. It's just, it's, it's pretty stupidity. Nuts. Do you think that uh, that has an effect if somebody chooses to embrace that number as their mark? Personally? Well, I think if anything becomes something you embrace as your mark or sign or your affiliation, it has an effect on you. But you impute it with the you impute it with the meaning, you know, and it probably does affect your soul because you've imputed that thing with the meaning. So, you know, 666 to the guy with the credit card, it really did frighten him. He imputed it with the meaning. And so, you know, I had to kind of reason with him and, and say, so I do think it has a power for us, uh -huh. but I think originally what John was talking about was just the Demetra on how to describe Caesar Nero. So it was more just a code, really. That's all it was. Interesting. Yeah, just a code. Anything else? All right, you guys, you're hanging in, man. This stuff, it's, it, you know, it just gets heavier and heavier, but we'll make it through, and I'll try to make it as cohesive as possible. Let's get out of here and go be Christians. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for uh, all you do, and we realize you have a perspective that steps back trillions of light years, and you see things we cannot fathom when it comes to our existences in this life and eternal life and your and the faith and so we, we we seek you to be a people of faith and trust that you have this eternal view that brings all suffering misery and and blessings into scope and that you have purposes and reason help us to be patient and kind uh, with people who are influenced by different opinions of this book and be loving and realize there's things we don't know that we can learn and and um to realize we're not saved by our doctrine, we're saved by your son and his shed blood and our faith upon him. So help us to grow in our doctrines and our understandings and especially our faith and love. Bless those who are suffering. Bless the Brown family and the loss of Kay last week and, and uh, help them in their mourning. And as we prayed this morning, we pray your continued blessings on, on uh, the Wangsgard family entire and help them as that we remember and think of our sister Heidi and, uh, and that loss and the mourning that uh, they are certainly continuing to go through. And we pray for your blessings upon uh, Patrick's brother, Paul, that he'll come to know uh, God and Jesus. We pray that you'll bless Grace, that little 18-month-old who has cancer. And this week she undergoes uh, radiation and chemo. We pray you'll bless Diana and her broken leg, laying in that rehab center for a month, not able to really do much. And we just pray you'll encourage her and bless her spirit. We pray for the Webster family, suffered the death of their uncle and then a suicide by a cousin this week alone. And they're gone back to Colorado to deal with that. And, and for the different uprisings of darkness that happen, and we just pray that we'll see your light amidst it and know that you have that view and you have that understanding, and you're working all things for good to those that love you. So help us to love you better. Help us to love our neighbors second. 
and to move forward in faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been